Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story! Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! Who you are, where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by the Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. And what I'm doing over the course of these 33 issues is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I have three comics for you this time around. They are G.I. Joe number 65, The Punisher number 4, and Marvel Age number 56, all of which came out on August 11th, 1987. I'm going to start with the G.I. Joe issue, which retailed for a dollar and has a cover by Mike Zeck that shows a Cobra spaceship firing on an astronaut who is tethered to a space shuttle. For an issue whose concept is G.I. Joe space missions, it's a solid action-packed cover. Let's see if the interior is just as good. Our story is Shuttle Complex, and our creative team is Larry Hama script, Ron Wagner pencils, Randy Emberlin inks, Bob Sharon coloring, Joe Rosen lettering, Bob Harris editor, and we have a new editor-in-chief, and that is Tom DeFalco. We open in orbit above the Earth where an astronaut is making repairs to a spy satellite. The space shuttle sensors start running wild, and that is because a Cobra satellite is approaching, and they realize that Cobra doesn't have just one satellite, they're running a whole worldwide operation. On Cobra Island, the Baroness tries to plot with Fred so she can continue to make whatever power play she's making with him as, quote, Cobra Commander. But she's interrupted by Dr. Mindbender, who storms in to tell them about the satellites being detected, which means that this could spell bad news for their plans involving the terror drones. Cobra Commander, the Baroness, and a crew of Cobra Viper soldiers are strapped into a space shuttle and take off while Dr. Mindbender does some more crunches. At Joe headquarters in Utah, Hawk arrives at what is the new pit and gets a briefing about the Cobra satellite, and we get a similar situation, finally finding out what those tricks were and the tracks were in the previous issue, treads from the vehicle that moves the Joe's space shuttle. They launch. In space, the Cobra shuttle snags the satellite from the beginning of the issue, as well as the astronaut's umbilical cord. The Baroness doesn't care about the astronaut because she needs the satellite to find out what the United States government knows about the terror drones. They are about to destroy the space shuttle when the Joes arrive and a space shuttle dogfight featuring characters such as Payload and Sci-Fi begins. The Cobras fire missiles, the Joes fire lasers, and the Baroness is knocked out and Fred freezes, knowing not what to do. The Joes rescue the astronaut who tells them that Cobra is interested in the satellite, and then Fred finally snaps to and has the Cobra shuttle start hitting the Joes and the U.S. spy satellites with as much as they can. They destroy a number of spy satellites and wound the Joes shuttle before bugging out and going home. The Joes head back as well, the mission complete. We then close the issue by shifting to Europe, where Snake Eyes, Scarlet, and the Blind Master are training with a circus. 
Snake Eyes is throwing knives at Scarlet, who is on a rotating piece of plywood, while he stands on the shoulders of the Blind Master, who is standing on a ball and juggling chainsaws. The people running the circus, including the White Clown, who is the owner and manager, think it's a great act. And he notes that they have two more shows to play in Austria before they head over the border into Barovia. I have to admit that I've never thought much of this issue. It's an introduce the toy issue, if I'm being completely honest. 1987 was the last year I really collected G.I. Joe toys, and that Christmas would really be the last time I got those toys for gifts. Plus, if I'm remembering things correctly, there weren't a huge number of Joe toys under the tree. It was the previous year when I got the Terradrome and a number of other things. That was my big G.I. Joe year. But I'm going to save the toy talk for another episode and focus on this comic book, which is better than I remember, even if I think we're stalling on the storyline about the Joes in captivity. The action honestly could take place anywhere. This could have happened on an island somewhere, or in the desert mission, or in the Antarctic. But since there was a space shuttle to introduce, Hama put the Joes and the Cobras in space and made the entire storyline about Cobra's operations with the Terradromes being revealed. It's serviceable. It has a solid amount of action, especially after last issue, which really didn't have very much. And there's at least a little progression with our other storyline, with the circus scene at the end, which is going to be wrapped up in the next issue. If there's any really great part of the space story, it's the scene where Fred has to actually make a decision because the Baroness gets knocked out. Basically what happens is that the Joe's shuttle hits the Cobra shuttle with its lasers, and the Baroness gets hit on the head with a piece of equipment. While the Joes go to the rescue for the astronaut, the Baroness falls to the ground, and well, the way Ron Wagner and Randy Emberlin draw her, I don't know if she has a concussion or an orgasm. Seriously, they draw her in mid-fall, her head is thrown back, her chest and torso are kind of thrust up, it's a bit suggestive? But then again, maybe that's because I'm one of those guys who think the Baroness is hot. Anyway, after she's knocked out, the crew of the shuttle says, Cobra Commander, we're standing by for your orders. Tell us what to do. Save us, Cobra Commander. And they focus closer and closer in on Fred's faceplate as he eye, and his eyes as he panics because he's completely out of his element here and he now actually has to make a decision that involves putting people's lives into his hands. And he does. He gets the crew to start firing back, and he winds up having success in the mission. I'm going to say that this plays in later in the inner turmoil in Cobra, especially with the whole Serpentor Baroness conflict. So, solid progress on that story. Otherwise, it's a pretty good issue. Not one of my favorites, but Hama is so consistent that even when I'm not into that, I think it's pretty good. One quick criticism, though. I don't know if it's the coloring in the original comic or if it's the IDW trade that I have, but in issue 64, Payload was black, and in this issue, he's white. If anyone out there has an actual copy of G.I. Joe number 65, comment and let me know if that was a mistake in the original comic or if this is the IDW uh, remasterings fault. Anyway, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'll have the Punisher number 4. Stick around. Sawate. 
My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swierzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. So my next comic is The Punisher number 4, which came out on the same date and has a cover price of 75 cents. The cover, which is by Klaus Janssen, shows a deranged-looking guy shooting the Punisher in the back and Frank falling, facing the viewer. It's pretty much what happens in the story, although in the comic, Frank's not in his full Punisher uniform as he is on the cover of this comic book. However, that's okay, because the cover is a solid one. It's got action, it's well-composed, and has enough of a draw to get you to pick it up off the shelf. The Rev, which is the title of the story, was written by Mike Barron with art and colors by Klaus Janssen. Ken Brusniak lettered... Carl Potts was your editor. Tom DeFalco is the new editor-in-chief. We are back in New Jersey with Microchip, who is the guy who's the Punisher's gear supplier and uh, vehicle supplier, and Frank's ordering a replacement for the van he had to destroy in issue three. He meets Microchip's son, Junior, who is a computer whiz from Caltech, and who is going to eventually be taking over the family business. And by the way, we know he's a cool hacker computer whiz kid by the fact that he has an earring and a cool punk haircut. Anyway, after meeting with Microchip, Frank meets with Martin, his weapons supplier, and they're talking. as they're talking, Martin mentions that an urban-based cult named the Church of the Saved which is run by a man named The Rev, was asking him for a huge number of weapons. He turned them down. Just then, someone starts shooting at the car they're sitting in, and Martin is killed. Frank saves himself by dunking under the dashboard, and then, after waiting for nearly 30 minutes, finds his moment and pops out of the car, shooting the gunman. Sure enough, he was a member of the Church of the Saved. Frank decides to gather what information he can on this church. Microchip knows a cop buddy on, of whose wife left him for the church, and they find out that the Rev is named Sammy Smith, and he comes from Terre Haute, Indiana. He is leading the cult and seems to have a plan to take the group to Guinea. Frank meets Ray White, Microchip's cop friend, and convinces him to infiltrate the cult, or at least help him infiltrate the cult. 
A few days later, Frank shows up to the cult's church dressed like and smelling like a vagrant and saves the church members from a deranged white who busts in carrying a shotgun. Of course, it was a ruse, and this gets Frank on the inside. He meets the Rev, who seems to have some sort of magic touch, although I think that may be something to do with the tea he had Frank drink, and Frank accompanies some of the Rev's men on a mission to retrieve an incriminating tape from a reporter's apartment. They bust into the apartment, they are attacked by the guy inside, Frank is shot in the back, and he's brought back to the church. The Rev heals him and removes the bullet, and the woman who is nursing him back to health is Ray White's wife, Vicky. The issue ends with Frank leaving the church to take care of business and avoiding the Rev's men who are trying to tail him. He returns to the apartment from earlier, where he found the tape, but he'd rehidden it. And he watches it. The footage is of the Rev executing a follower who disappointed him and also discussing some stolen plutonium. To be continued. So this episode marks a key point in my series here because it's where I'm starting to say goodbye to series that have been important parts of the show. I don't know how this particular storyline ends because I never bought The Punisher number 5 and I've never read it. This is the last issue I bought and the reasons for all that will be discussed in episode number 33 because that's where I'll cover my last G.I. Joe comic. But I will say that it has nothing to do with my not liking this issue at this time or now. And neither does my never having read the next issue. In that case, I never got around to buying my own copy of issue 5 because after 1993 or so, The Punisher felt completely over off my radar. But let's get to the issue. It's another solid one from Baron and Jansen. I can see why people weren't the biggest fan of Jansen's work, uh, because it's starting to wear a little bit. The Rev has red hair that looks like it was styled by David Coverdale's stylist. He's got a white suit that he apparently stole from the Beyonder. And there's some wonky figure work here and there. Plus, there are times where Jansen's art and colors do not match well with the cheap paper on which this was printed. Klaus Jansen would actually only have one more issue on this title, because David Ross would do issues number 6 and number 7 before Will, Will Sparticcio and Scott Williams took over the artwork for a while. And while I may actually see if I can track down some of those on the cheap just to see how Particcio's Punisher looked, I still think that Jansen was a real asset for the character. These four issues have been nothing like I was reading at the time. While they definitely invoked the work that Jansen did with Frank Miller on Daredevil and Batman, I think that Jansen really did a great job of elaborating Baron's gritty scripts. Speaking of Batman, this is slightly similar to a Batman story we'd see about a year or two later called The Cult, which is written by Jim Starlin and had art by Bernie Wrightson. And you can hear Andy Leyland and I talk about The Cult on episode 60 of Pop Culture Affidavit. You should listen to it, by the way. Um... I know I'm plugging my own stuff here, but I'm really proud of that one. The Cult's an amazing story, and I love the conversation I had with Andy, and I'm, I really love how the episode turned out. The Rev storyline here is really solid, even if it is a little formulaic in the sense. Frank knows someone who is connected or is in trouble with this villain. That person gets hurt or killed. Frank takes action. I mean, I guess there are only so many ways you can introduce storylines to store for stuff like this. So, I'll let it go. Plus, the Rev is another villain right out of that late 80s, early 90s playbook. Only like a, He's kind of like a David Koresh type uh, before the Branch Davidians came to national attention in the early 1990s with their standoff against the FBI. And for all I know, Mike Barron might have read up on cults like the Branch Davidians. I wasn't familiar with them back in 1987, although the cult in this story fits the mood. Uh, 
the mention of Giddy also recalls something like Jonestown as well, which he also might have been uh, calling upon for reference. Getting Frank into the cult using a pissed-off cop as a ruse is a great tactic, by the way, and I really like how that scene plays out. Frank also seems distracted and confused about the way the Rev touches him, and while I don't think he would ever actually become a part of said cult, I can see that he understands how this man has influenced and entranced so many people. The scene where the Punisher is shot in the back is a bit of a weird one. We're led to believe that they're going to a reporter's place, but when they show up, this nutjob has a gun, and he's screaming at them about how they're all Lucifer, and Satan keeps shooting at them. And, and Satan, and he keeps shooting at them. It serves as a good plot device for Frank to get deeper into this flock, and it's a well-staged action scene, even if it is a little nuts. But... In an area of one-and-dones, and in this case two-parters, that could very well be formulaic, at least the story has been 1980s action interesting enough to make me wonder about what happens in the next issue. For some reason, this entire series is not available on Marvel Unlimited. In fact, it's not available at all. Uh, Marvel Unlimited has the 86 miniseries and some stuff 1994-95, I think-ish. And it's got stuff post-1995-96. Um, it has been reprinted in com in uh, The Essential Punisher Volume 2, if you can find it. And those go for varying prices. Sometimes they're cheap, sometimes they're more expensive. Depends on how many were overprinted by Marvel. And uh, Comixology does have two issues of the 87 Punisher series. As of my recording this, it was issues 10 and 64. I'm kind of hoping that more will become available as we go. But that'll do it for Punish number four. Almost. Because I have a paper copy of this comic. And it's a classic comic. So. Oh, the comic smell. I love the comic smell. Okay. That means I can talk about letters and ads. Um, I feel like. What's funny is that I, this came out as the same month as one of the issues of the NOM I covered back in, uh, you know, God, like three or four years ago, uh, early issues of the NOM. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of ads I've already seen, and, and the, the ad of the back cover is one that I've already done a little bit for, but I think I'll, I'll repeat myself a little bit here. Uh, this time the M&Ms are playing baseball, and it's a hit uh, because there's chocolate fun for everyone, and if you get a six-pack of M&Ms... You get free baseball players cards. There is the uh, Oxy because pimply faced kids read comics. And we have two definitions of Zittles. You have paper acne, the kind of acne you'd hide behind a book, and opposites, two matching pimples, one on each cheek. George Brett. My great great grandfather was named George Brett. No relation to this George Brett. Um, he was a shipbuilder. Uh, and actually, a little family history here. If you look up a photograph called the, I think it's called the Building of the Fog-Free Zone. It's just a photograph of people building a boat. Somewhere on the um, on the land in the, in the photo, there's a guy. He kind of looks like a little hunched over, like he has a little bit of a hunchback. He's a little old man. That's my great-grandfather in that photo. It's It's been around on the internet for a while. Anyway, this George Brett, the one who hit that pine tar home run and then came out screaming at umpires in a clip that I can watch over and over and over again for the rest of my life, uh, has a video cassette offer say George Brett's Secrets of Baseball for $14.95. You can learn how to play baseball by video. 
New England Comics has an ad where they have uh, just a huge one of those huge lists of comics and how much they're going to cost if you order through them. I used to love looking at those. There's a two-page spread for Gazetteer, uh, a D&D module for Gazetteer, and uh, Gamma Rodders from TSR, some role-playing stuff. Uh, CBG Direct Comics and Games in LA, California has a similar ad to the New England Comics ad where it lists stuff on the bottom half of a page and the top half of a page. There are four pictures of children with muti m-u-t-i-e written in red over one of them and it says it's 1987 do you know what your children do you know what your children are paid for by citizens to support in the mutant registration act which is a clever little house ad for the fall of the mutant storyline that's coming up we have a hodgepodge ad jerry ross and robert crestel are selling comics uh, they have prices listed. There's a Toronto Charity Comic Con on August 30th. You can get magic tricks, muscles in seven days. Attention, Virginia. If you're traveling this summer, come see us at Dave's Comics. Mile high, you can order a comic list uh, for free. Discount Comics in Santee, California can also give you some, some stuff. And you have... The classic order this fake vomit, etc., etc. Supercell. Another hodgepodge ad a couple of pages down. Some more of the same. Um, your ad here features Spidey shooting a web, saying, like, you know, get in contact with Rita Smolinski, and um, you can learn self defense, etc., etc. X ray specs, microbugs. Punishing males. Here's some of the letters here. Uh, H. Headley at, at Toronto, Ontario wants to talk about the first two issues. The first issue is full of delightful surprises. Has the comics market reached a new point where no one wants a story without a built-in ending? I was also impressed by your use of the real names, locations, and events. The Punisher doesn't seem to suffer from an affliction common to other books, and that is the in inability to face reality. Um, the second issue just reinforced everything I liked about the first. Having the Punisher fly to Peru rather than a non-existent Costa Diego is just the sort of thing I mean. Additionally, you didn't seem to flinch at showing violence inherent in fighting a war. All I've done is praise the story, but don't let it fool you. I'm highly impressed with the art as well. Klaus Jansen brings some gritty realism to the Punisher. Um, C. Carl Dubois from Flushing, New York has some more, um stuff about the realism and, and puts it up there with the nom in terms of its realism and stuff. Dante Rudnick has another positive letter. And then we have John Spear Voskamp from Block Island, Rhode Island, which is just off to the coast, the eastern end of Long Island, by the way. Carl, I picked up the first two issues of The Punisher. I'm afraid they're going to be my last. Please let me explain. I think the art is great. Klaus Jansen is one of the modern masterminds of comic art. The writer is also pretty high quality. I just don't like the theme. Maybe I'm too artsy for this book, but it just doesn't thrill me. Too black and white. Sorry. Hmm. Um, Bill Craig writes in basically fansplaining... Uh, about how weapons work um, and gets really into and, and they say, you know, hey, you obviously know a lot about firearms, so we appreciate you writing and keep us uh, writing and to keep us honest. 
you know, and basically how, um, how, you know, the, uh, inaccurate they are with their portrayal of weapons, etc., etc. Um, finally, Dory Kelly from Philadelphia says, I have a question about the Punisher. Is this a book set in the Marvel Universe? If so, don't cheapen the book by playing, putting him up against the likes of Doctor Doom and Loki. Guest starring everybody and their dog just to raise the sale would only drag the book down into the depths of mediocrity. Keep the Punisher pure. To answer your question, Dory, they say, and I think it's Mark McLaurin, who's the assistant editor, who is... Uh, who is answering these. The Punisher does take place in the very same Marvel Universe. Luckily, though, you have very little to worry about. Did you ever run into Loki at your local 7-Eleven? I don't think so. He operates on a completely different level than both we and Frank Castle, our lovable Punisher. However, given the sorts of situation he often finds himself in, we wouldn't rule out with a... We, a, we wouldn't rule out with a run-in with any of the denizens of the seamier side of life, for instance, Daredevil. Now, if that wasn't a hint... Um, we have a, we wrap up with a subscription ad where Hawkeye is playing William Tell on, off of Mockingbird's head with a solo Avengers comic, Avengers comic. There's a bullpen bulletins on the inside back cover where, uh, they talk about how Jim Shooter has quote, stepped down from his position as editor in chief. And Tom DeFalco is the new editor-in-chief. There's a profile on Mark Grunewald. And on the back is probably one of the most famous Marvel Comics ads, comic book ads of 1987. Meatloaf, humongous rock star of the universe in Heroes Helping Heroes. And uh, you've all seen this. I did this in the nom but let's go uh special olympians are real heroes i'm gonna give him everything i got but who's gonna help me will help meatloaf but how by returning this coupon today um the superheroes need 250,000 of their friends to help the 1987 international summer special olympic games please help if you can send five bucks for a record or cassette of the official theme song and theme music of the 1987 international special olympics summer games and uh, you can get a time for heroes. My last comic is Marvel Age number 56, which features G.I. Joe in the cover and cost 50 cents. Here's some highlights. Uh, 
The cover is by Russ Heath. It shows a bunch of jo- a bunch of the new Joes, including Law and Order and Psych Out, who we've been seeing quite a bit of uh, over the course of the last few issues. Our coming attractions sees Hawkeye versus Hawkeye and West Coast Avengers. The uh, Incredible Hulk versus X-Factor thing that we saw teased at the end of the last issue by Todd McFarlane. What we saw last episode or two episodes ago in The Amazing Spider-Man number 294, which is um, Spider-Man punching Kraven and screaming, Two weeks! Then we have uh, our feature article on a bunch of new Joes and what that's going to mean. For instance, you have, uh, and we have pictures of the following Fast Draw, the new Cobra Commander, Payload Crystal Ball from the Cobras, who I don't think we've seen yet, the Baroness, um, and Croc Master. And uh, Larry Hama is giving an interview about who the new characters are, including Psych Outs, who's a psychological guy, um, the Space Shuttle Defiance, what's going on with Cobra Commander, Destro how he's gathering his own army behind the scenes, uh, who Crocmaster is, and how Battle Force 2000 will be coming up. Marvel's trivia quiz this time around will is about G.I. Joe. Stan gets on his soapbox this time and pushes House 2, the second story, including Marvel's adaptation of that as well as some other new world entertainment stuff we have a willie lumpkin comic about that hembeck is doing his two-page spread with captain america mark gruenwald gives the interview this time around uh talking a little bit about hawkeye the avengers and captain america we've got some pretty cool hawkeye stuff uh, as well as some pretty good Scarlet Witch uh, panels that are being shown. There's a feature on Alien Legion, um, which I I've heard of, and and again, this is one of those this is one of those Marvel books that I'm actually kind of interested in, and and I, I seem to be coming be becoming more interested in some of the more obscure like kind of left of center or left of the dial type of Marvel stuff from this era the same way that some of DC stuff is interesting the unfortunately thing about the unfortunate thing about that is in some cases they're not the easiest things in the world to find like for instance I really have been where I can buying some copies of movie adaptations that Marvel did in the 80s I have like one issue of Conan the Destroyer I have an issue of the Blade Runner one I have the Time Bandits one I want to get that Close Encounters one uh, Treasury Edition or not um, I have all the Star Wars ones in the Star Wars trades from Dark Horse. And I don't know, just stuff like that. And then you have like stuff like Alien Legion and, and some of the magazine type of stuff that I'm kind of more interested in. And not all of it is available digitally. So it gives me something to actually look for sometimes at the comic store. Uh, and the same thing with some Star Trek stuff and stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe maybe at some point I will kind of bust out a... a an ish, uh, a podcast episode or two, or a few blog posts about some of these comic adaptations or or whatever of uh, of movies because they are they are sometimes fun to read, especially considering that you know back in the day you didn't have you know as much video of of some of these things or at least you had to wait a much longer time for video. 
So there's a star spotlight um, there. Star Comics remembers their kids' line in the late 80s, and this is one that's on Bullwinkle and Rocky the Flying Squirrel. Uh, and uh, so we have Moose and Squirrel. Marvel Age, the history uh, look back, looks at 1975 Part 3 and has a little bit of a price guide of some stuff and what it's worth from that uh, from that era. Marvel Graphic Novelties is the name of our letter column this time, and people are looking in and... Um, Let's see. One guy is asking about, uh, you know, where do I, where do I get back issues? Where can I read old stories without having to, you know, break the bank? And they talk about how you can get Marvel history through Marvel Saga, the official's handbook, um, and and other uh, other things. They also about ask about the music mutant massacre, and they give they give him the issues that he needs to get to know what is the uh, music. The, the uh, Mutant Massacre. Larry Brown of Roanoke, Virginia says, Dear Pete, has Aunt May ever seen your apartment? He, he, Pete says, Sure, Larry. Every Tuesday when she stops by on her way to that karate class she teaches. Okay. Um, Jason Diamond of South Pasadena, California asks about um, and what a no prize is. But then we get to the letter of the month. And uh, this is something that uh, I really haven't been looking at in terms of Marvel Age, but they do have a letter of the month, and it says this time is going to cause controversy. So uh, this is about... Well, I'm going to read it, because it actually applies to something that I've heard a lot of comics fans and pop culture fans talk about over the last few years. It's from Al Michael and Paul Rickard of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and here is what they write. Dear Marvel, where have all the heroes gone? We mean this letter with neither malicious intent nor out of ignorance. Recently, we become aware of a serious decline in the quality of books Marvel Comics is publishing. Depressing storylines and dark, unhappy conflicts seem to be the craze. Marvel's books generally seem to reflect the depressing dark side of the ideals comic books are supposed to represent. We can look at Marvel's lineup and find very real, very few real quote, heroes in the true sense of the word. We think you take yourselves too seriously. Recently, Marvel Comics sank to an all-time low in publishing a story, specifically X-Factor number 15, in which the Angel, a respected and beloved mutant hero, after being maimed in the mutant massacre, another new low, readers love death, readers buy death, therefore let's say to hell with our standards and give them lots of death, willingly and quite graphically commits suicide. It has always been our assumption that heroes were role models for children and adults alike, especially in this medium. Watching Angel take his own life just to forward a storyline was not just depressing, it was infuriating. Anyone who reads X-Factor number 15 will be left with this message. Give up. There's no hope. We live in a dark, cruel world, and if, it, if fictional superheroes can't make it, what hope have we as ordinary humans to survive? The Marvel Age once stood for that which was new and original. Now the only new and original concepts are in your other lines of publishing, Epic and the Syrupy Star Comics. We realize you will not probably print this letter. Uh, nor was that the intent of writing it. You have proven yourselves capable of producing great works. Why stop now? It is not necessary to portray death and destruction all the time. Why are you afraid of the happy ending? We hope you take our concerns seriously. 
Alan, Michael, and Paul Rickard. Oh, and Alan and Michael, just for me, just coming from me. <laughs> Wait until you get to the 90s. Um, but here's Marvel's response. You've raised some interesting points in your letter, Alan and Paul. Although naturally we disagree with the f quite a few of them. First, though, we want to say that we're kind of hurt by your assumption that we wouldn't print your letter, presumably because it was negative. True, we don't print letters that say... And only say, boy, do you guys stink. But we don't printers that just say, boy, you guys are amazing either. Your letter was obviously well thought out, and it's clear that you care about the comics. We only regret that we had to cut parts of it because of space limitations. Oh, this is longer. Now, on to the main point of your story. Sorry, but we're going to have to disagree with you. What you consider to decline in Marvel's quality is actually a reflection of what has always been our greatest strength, the realism with which our characters are portrayed. Whether it's Peter Parker trying to discuss juggles superheroing a social life and a career or scott summer searching desperately for his missing wife and child the characters are portrayed as real people and that means they're not always going to do the right thing should the angel have tried to kill himself of course not suicide is stupid but that doesn't stop thousands of people from trying it every year and if you've ever known someone who's tried it you know how hard it is to convince them that he was wrong granted the angel story did not have a happy ending we contrast that to hank pym's attempt at suicide Hank ended up realizing that life is too precious to throw away, and he came out of it a better man. Hank triumphed where the angel failed. No, not every story has a happy ending, but not every story has a sad one either. Just like life, huh? Anyway, that's our opinion. What do the rest of you think we'd like to know? And now on the lighter side... Chris McDonald says that he liked Howard the Duck. <laughs> well, there you go. Um... There is, uh, then there's Dave Hansen from Red Wing, Red Wing, Minnesota, talking about how much he likes uh, Shadow Cat. And there's a drawing of Kitty Pride in her Shadow Cat uniform, which is really 80s looking. I, I guess, I don't know. I, th I think this is Art Adams. Or it looks like Art Adams. And uh, I didn't realize how 80s looking this particular uniform was, but uh, it's still a pretty cool uniform. I was like, I was like Kitty Pride, and I was like Shadow Cat. Uh, then our last couple of ad, our last ad is uh, a house ad for the Armor War in Iron Man number 225, the time for the Avenger to start avenging, and the August 1987 calendar, where we have, uh, on August 5th and 6th, another TV series we'd like to see, The God Couple with Hercules and Thor, um... August 9th is Rick Leonardi and Bob McLeod's birthday as well. Uh, John Romita Jr. was born on August 17th. Terry Austin's birthday, Bub, as Wolverine tells us as he spears his cigar with his claws, is August 22nd. And Jack the King Kirby was born on August 28th. And that'll do it for me. Next time around on August 18th, I'm going to have three comics once again, and I'll wrap up two more series. The Transformers, with issue number 34. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 132, which will be part six of Craven's Last Hunt, which is the finale of that storyline. And Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, Annual 7, which is Peter and Mary Jane's honeymoon. Until then, please go and check out the blog, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Go to the Facebook which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. I now am on Twitter as popcultureaffidavit, which you can find it at popaff, 
at P-O-P-A-F-F. And you can always email me with feedback at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And as always, take care and thanks for listening.